loss helps us define our lives. By allowing our grief to matter, we discover our own strengths and embrace our authentic selves. Welcome to Good Grief with your host, Cheryl Jones. Get ready to be inspired, to create a deeper life, to make your time on Earth much more meaningful. Now, here is Cheryl Jones. Hello, I'm your host, Cheryl Jones, and I want to welcome you to Good Grief, where we talk each week about the transformations that can come from loss. Today, I'm welcoming Emma Gray. Emma's an acclaimed Australian journalist and young adult fiction writer. Her writing has appeared in The Age, Canberra Times, and Herald Sun. The Last Love Note is her debut adult novel. And we'll mostly be talking about that today and what, what brought her to write it. She lives in Canberra, Australia with her family. Welcome, Emma. Thanks, Cheryl. It's lovely to be here. Great to have you. And I want to start just by saying how much I appreciated your, your book. Uh, I myself wrote a novel out of grief experience. I, I understand some of my reasons to do that, and I'd, I'd like to hear yours too. But to start with, just thank you for capturing particularly anticipatory grief and early grief in your writing, um, because it's so soothing to people to hear the actual voice of it. Um, oh, so thank you. For that. Maybe you could talk a bit about coming to write the book what happened in your life that led there and, and give people a background on the book. Yes, certainly. Um, my wonderful husband passed away. He actually passed away suddenly from a heart attack in 2016. And I had a young child who was five, um, we, our son, and I also had two uh, teenage daughters from my first marriage and they were right at the the part of schooling where they were in their final year of high school and, and a couple of years younger so heading into exams and celebrations and and all of that excitement of the end of school and um and out of the blue we were dealt this this devastating loss and I'd been writing for many years and I I realized really early on that for me, the only way that I was going to get through this and process what was happening was through words. So I started off by writing a lot of sort of um, personal accounts for um, local magazines and, and just talking about our story. Um, but that was only in sort of 800 word pieces. And I realized that I had a lot more to say and that as time went on, I needed sort of the length of a book to try to express what was happening. And I tossed up various different approaches. I wondered whether I could write a memoir. And then I thought, oh, well, you know, we've got an extended family that's probably a little bit more private than I am. Um, and so I settled on fiction in the end. And I'm so glad that I did because it gave me an opportunity to really delve deeply into these very real emotions, but to place them into a setting and a character and a world that wasn't exactly my own. But that saying that there's just so much of our own story in this book. And um, at the same time, my mum, who um, who actually I, I lost three months ago to dementia, was at the end stages of that illness. So I was able to um, draw upon a lot of what my father was going through and what we were going through in watching her go through that illness while I was writing this book as well. But it was incredibly cathartic and therapeutic to write. 
And I do remember not long after Jeff died, people were giving me books, a lot of nonfiction books about grief and how to survive it. And then somebody gave me a novel and it was about a woman who had a five-year-old and um, lost her husband in very similar circumstances. And I remember just devouring this book three weeks after he died because I just wanted to see myself on the pages. And I think that's what I hope that I'm offering a lot of readers with this book, uh, that they will um, feel seen and acknowledged and, and understand that their grief, you know, that they're not alone in their grief. Oh, I think that's so important and resonates with some things I feel about it that I really resonate with novels, memoirs, story. Yes. Yeah. It's a personal, I know people who, who devour uh, how to grief books. Yes. Uh, but uh, for me, I'm inclined to personal story. It makes me feel so much more seen and connected. Isn't that interesting? It um, is. And I, I, I did, um, I did wonder about writing a how-to book, but then I found Megan Devine's amazing website, Refuge in Grief, and her book, "It's Okay That You're Not Okay." And I remember thinking, well, I don't think I can perfect that. She's done such a great job in capturing what grief feels like, and um, I think there's some brilliant books around that can help us. Yeah, I've obviously read a lot of grief books. Yes, and yes. Different ways into into uh, finding resonance there. Mm. I was interested, actually, uh, that you you talked about a grief experience where it was known in advance. Mm. I was actually kind of surprised to hear that wasn't your experience. Yes, yes, mother. I guess you know. Yes. It, uh, I, I always, when I'm talking with someone who's had a sudden loss, I'm thinking, oh my gosh, that's so much harder. I had a decade. And mm -hmm. then people who have not experienced uh, loss of this of this level um, are always saying, oh God, 10 years, that must have been so hard. Yes, exactly. And on balance, I'm glad I had 10 years. Oh, look, I've thought a lot about this in the last three months since we lost my mum because we've now had both types of loss. And, I mean, <laughs> there's no there's no sort of good way or bad way. What I do think is that the way that my husband died suddenly from a heart attack was the best way for him but was difficult for us because we were plunged into shock. And, you know, we spent, in fact, we couldn't even start to grieve for quite some time because we were just plunged into trying to understand how this could have possibly happened. And our lives had just suddenly been completely upturned and disrupted. And we didn't know where we were and what we were going to do. No time to prepare, but no time to say goodbye, which was the hardest part. And, and then with my mum, we did have that time. In the end, she it was an infection that took her, but we still had a couple of days. And I greatly appreciated the opportunity to say what I wanted to say. I felt like I was almost saying it to her and Jeff in one somehow. Um, and having said that, though, I look at the decade and more of years that we watched her decline and that I watched my dad care for her in extraordinary circumstances of just, I mean, he was 91 as well, or he is 91, an amazing man. Um, and I think, you know, that was really so difficult for them and for her in particular. 
Um, so I think that each way has different, um, you know, has a, diff a different um, response in the grievers. But one thing I know is that losing someone in an out of order early way is is completely different from losing a parent um, or a person who has lived a long and happy um, life has had, you know, has sort of got to the end of a natural life. Um, I found that so much easier to accept um, than to lose somebody in midlife. Well, there's another aspect about the 10 years, because of course, when she died, she was 45, I was 42. It's a long mm -hmm. time, 70 now. Um, but uh, we never skirted around it. And the things that got said in that period of time. Mm. For instance, I thought that you really captured the terrible way it feels for your person to say love again, because yes. I exact experience. Yes. How it feels at the time and how valuable it feels later. Yes. And, and thankfully for me, while I was, uh, we were talking earlier before the call started about the fact that I am yet to meet a new partner, but I am now open to meeting somebody. And partly that's because Jeff and I had had that conversation, you know, even though we didn't know that this was coming, we had previously once said to each other, look, if anything ever happens to me, I want you to find happiness again. And I encourage people to have that conversation with their partners, you know, whether or not they're facing this at the moment, um, because it is such a, a beautiful thing to carry afterwards. You can't imagine it at the time, but as you say, it, it does make it easier when that when that opportunity might present itself in the future. I think it. Uh, tell me if this is true for you. It names it as a. Th it named it as a thing of mine. Yes. Hers. Yes, yes. Uh, but if I was hesitating, it was something about my relationship to loving again, mm. not the relationship to loyalty. Absolutely. And um, the way that it, somebody helped me understand it too was this notion about if you've got children, you might have one child and then you have a second child and the, the second child coming along takes nothing away from your love of the first child. Your heart can just expand to cope with both loves and, and you know, embrace both people. And I, I feel as though that that would be how it might feel. Yes, I, I agree. I, even, even people who have um, had a child die. Yes. A child that they would not have had. Yes. <laughs> Yes, that's right. And you know, it's not just about loving again, it's about living again, I think as well, because um, in fact, I, I took my father away for a, a holiday in the last week and he had been caring for mum intensely for the last five years, but certainly for longer than that, but he couldn't travel for the last five years. So we took him to visit his 98-year-old sister who mm -hmm. lives you know, 2,000 kilometres away, whatever that is in miles, a long way. And um, I, I we took him to the beach for sunrise. We took him to cafes and restaurants and we just saw him come alive. And uh, I've experienced this myself that your, your partner might die, but you haven't died. And there is still potentially decades ahead of, you know, people who lose someone in midlife to live. And 
you can feel a bit of that survivor guilt, I think, where you where you can find yourself enjoying things again. And um, and particularly for me, I've found that writing this book has opened up some amazing opportunities in my life. Talking to you, going on various podcasts, and of course, I've got this upcoming book tour in the US. And I wouldn't be doing it if Jeff hadn't died. Um, so I've had to come to terms with the fact that um, I'm still alive. I have opportunities ahead of me and Jeff would have wanted this for me. He was an incredibly supportive person, uh, supportive of my career, and he wanted to see us happy. And so that's that's this constant juggle that I think we have when we've lost someone that, you know, allowing ourselves to feel happiness again in any any different way. I, I want to say that I'm actually, uh, I was actually very shocked in grief because what I had worked on the whole 10 years was being present with whatever was true at the moment. Mm -hmm. A lot of work to get there, but I got there and I had a lot of joy in grief. Yeah. I yeah. cried every day, but I laughed every day. Oh, there's a lot of laughter, isn't there? I mean, you've only got to go to a funeral and there's so many tears but also so much laughter, particularly afterwards, or telling the stories of the person and, and keeping them alive in that way. Um, and there's also just a lot of funny things, that black humor, that dark humor that, that sort of happens where you just, you know, it's the sort of thing that sitcoms are made of, you know, that <laughs> you see a lot of, uh, of death in sitcoms and comedies. Um, you can't help but laugh sometimes. I want to say that, um, uh... When my current wife and I want a break from grief, we have a hard time finding anything. Yes, I bet. Everything has a death, a loss, a, you know, something of that. We've just sort of surrendered at this point. Even, even I guess I would say, you know, Marvel comic movies. Uh, yes. There's a lot of there's a lot of real intensity of loss in in mm. things. And I wonder how much it's because it gets blocked in regular interaction in society. Oh, yes. I think it does. And it's certainly in Australia, we don't do this well at all. And people don't know how to handle it, don't know what to say, haven't spoken about it openly, you know, going through life. So it comes as a huge shock to us. We don't talk about the processes of it or how it happens or any of that. We hide it and sweep it away. And, and it's almost like we fear that it's contagious or something if we if we talk about it. And I think some other cultures around the world do it so much better and incorporate death as part of life. And I think um, we have a lot to learn from those cultures. I agree with that. And also, I don't know if this is true in Australia, but I do feel that something has shifted in the conversation in the U.S. as a result of COVID. Oh, yes. Yeah, I'm sure it has. It was right. Possible. Yeah. Everyone was one way or another, either denying it or actively having a grief experience. Mm, yes. Yeah. Not necessarily all death. Yes. Yes. The next, our lives completely, you know, changed. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. That's right. Yeah, it certainly did. It it was a leveler, wasn't it? it? It put the whole world into into a situation that we shared. So I think um, there are more publishers, for instance, saying 
we can publish books on grief. You know, yeah. you have to, in order for it to be out there, it has to be out there. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yes. Kind of in that space where, um, where a book that is very funny, by the way, and deeply entrenched in the grief experience um, is, is going to get picked up, right? Mm -hmm. Yes. They want, they want to. Yes, and and Zibi Owens from from Zibi's books, who who's publishing this book, um, has had her own experience of grief and has written a memoir of grief. Um, she lost one of her closest friends in uh, in the Twin Towers, and so I think she she came to read my novel in a very receptive sort of way, um, you know, and that a lot of the grief story uh, would have resonated with her. So. I, ju I just lightly mentioned something that is so uh, important to me in the book, which is, um, I know you're not literally laughing at yourself as the character, Kate, but in a, in a way I imagine you are. Uh, yes. all, all those terribly insecure places that come with grief, mm -hmm. because it's almost like adolescence, you don't know who you are. Oh, absolutely. You have to completely redefine yourself. And you do find yourself having ridiculous thoughts and saying weird things. And I did want to capture all of that. And there certainly is a huge amount of me in that character. Was that, um, uh, I may be projecting a little and we can start this and then, you know, do more yeah. after. Writing a novel for me was very freeing, which totally shocked me. I thought yeah. it would be hard but it was very freeing i could just oh, is. you know i could interlay stories that fit and fit in but um i could tell the story however i wanted to i didn't have to worry about whether i was telling the truth quote unquote yeah. oh yeah it's wonderful it is it's liberating liberating very liberating and i wonder if there are other ways where from time to time you wanted to be telling your story uh, yes yeah and i do and i think it's in in interviews like this and and talks and presentations that i do that i have the opportunity to to do both to talk about the fictional story but also my own and i think that's been you know challenging at times but also very therapeutic so so you do share that with me that idea that the the form of fiction allows a different kind of truth yes because your your novel is very truthful. Yes, yeah. It's, you're almost you've almost got permission to go further into the truth when it's fiction, I think. And uh I I know you've probably gotten the feedback a lot that it is so authentic to the grief experience. Hmm. But I don't believe anybody who had not experienced loss could have written that book. Yes, I have had that feedback. Um several times where people have said you know they realized going through it and that they'd gone through it that you couldn't have you couldn't have imagined loss in this way without experience let's go to a break now and we'll come back and talk some more about that in a few minutes listeners you'll find links to my website and social media at the good grief page at voice america uh, all my social media has links there uh, please reach out and tell me what you'd what ideas you have for the show it's your show and to find emma gray you can go to emma gray.com g-r-e-y.com.au and there are links there to her social media
Be back soon. Voice America at Facebook.com forward slash Voice America for juicy updates from your favorite radio shows and podcasts. This is Good Grief host Cheryl Jones. Whether you're in grief, crisis, deep loss, or transition, working with the right therapist can move you forward like nothing else. That's why I'm happy to be sponsoring BetterHelp. Their user-friendly platform connects you with a therapist uniquely suited to support you. If you want to know more, follow the link on my host page or go to betterhelp.com slash goodgrief. That's betterhelp.com slash goodgrief and receive a 10% discount for the first month. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. Resiliency is the human capacity to lean into individual and collective strengths with compassion and grit when faced with the challenges of lived experience. Join host Elaine miller Karras for Resiliency Within, a program of hope and healing designed to inspire you to integrate wellness into your life, your family, and your community. In challenging times, you'll want to tune in every week. Resiliency Within can be heard every Monday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on The Voice of America Health and Wellness Channel. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1 866 472 5792. That's 1 866 472 5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. I'm Cheryl Jones, and I've been talking with Emma Gray about her novel, The Last Love Note. And and over the break, we were kind of talking about, uh, continuing to talk about fiction freeing you to really tell your truth um, through the characters, I guess we'd say in a way. And um, you were mentioning that people had asked if you pulled back so as not to, I guess, not to expose yourself so much, which yeah. if this book did not read that way at all. No, and that's that's no. because I, I didn't pull back. <laughs> no, I... Saying you actually dove in more, you wanted to go further. Talk about that a little bit, because uh, there, there's a way as a therapist, I feel as if the more opening there is, the more opening there is. <laughs> you know, that's, that's right. That's right. I... Um... I feel as though 
I don't know whether it was it was for my benefit as the writer or for the reader's benefit, but either way, I I I sort of wrote a draft and then I had to make this decision: have I said too much of my own personal you know experience or my feelings, or have I not said enough? And I felt as though I'd gone as far as I had, and I, I pr probably should just go even further in and and really delve deeply into those ugly and you know taboo feelings and thoughts that we have when we've lost someone, and talk about that because um, part of the reason for writing this novel was to entertain and you know to write a, a what's what's partly a romantic comedy. Um, just because I'm a romantic and love that sort of stuff. But it was very much also to be a cathartic experience for me and a, and a helpful experience for the reader. And um, we were saying that uh, a lot of the feedback has been that that as people have been reading, they've been, um, they've realised this couldn't have possibly been written by a person who hadn't been through this sort of loss. And um, it has generated some incredible conversations with readers who have got in touch and said, thank you for writing what I couldn't articulate, but what I feel. And so that's been such a privilege for me to be able to do that and then to be able to help people to have these conversations, whether we're queuing up at, at book signings or um, speaking at, at festivals or speaking on podcasts and, and radio shows. Um, because hopefully there's somebody out there listening who has been experiencing the same thing and, and wishing that, that they didn't feel so alone. I feel as if it's sort of a basic human need to be seen. Yes. And you have an experience that is not socially acceptable. Uh, this is true of many, of many experiences, loss being one of the primary ones. It's so isolating. Mm. And it feels to me as if people are looking for a place to feel seen. Yes. Never, uh, people listen to this show who never reach out to me. Mm. But I am, The impact would be there. Right. And people watched right away. You know, we're looking for places, aren't we? Mm. Absolutely. And then you become that place for people because... I, I'm going to assume because you actually weren't trying to avoid your own grief. You That's right. That's right. In fact, I remember very early on making a decision that I would not drink any alcohol um, while I was actively very deep in the grief. And it wasn't a, any sort of judgment call on, on, you know, whether or not people should drink alcohol while they're grieving, nothing like that. I just thought, gosh, it would be easy for me to avoid this and obliterate this, you know, in in a short-term way. And then I thought, if I do that, it's just going to prolong the whole experience. I need to feel it. And I can't get through this without getting through every single aspect of it. So instead I turned to, to words and writing and I I sort of, it wasn't just writing the novel. It was also, I, I'm very active on Facebook. And so when I would go through something, like I'd go to the to electricity company to to change the account. And, and anyone who's lost someone knows that just the, the minefield of walking through the whole administration side of it. And I would come back and I would sort of write about that on, on online and my friends would all pile on with their own experiences and, and we would talk it through. And it felt as though I left no stone unturned in grief 
and and was always surprised that there was more and more and more and other things and different. And, you know, I, I've often thought if I'd written this book earlier and stopped writing it earlier, um, in, in reality, I finished writing it six years after my husband had died, it would have been half the book it is because grief doesn't finish after two or three years. You know, it's only just beginning in a lot of ways. And I think that's that's one of the most confronting things. In fact, I read that um, not long after Jeff died. Some I read online that somebody had a grief expert. I wish I could remember who it was. I think Christina Rasmussen, I think her name is, had said um, that something about the early days of grief and how if you're reading this having just lost someone, you're probably hoping that she means the first two or three months but really she means the first two or three years as the early days. And and that was certainly my experience. Spouse loss, the, the, the amount of time I've heard quoted, obviously grief has no timeline. Everyone's guessing. You're right. Yes. <laughs> happened with them, but five years is what I've heard. Yeah, that rings true for me. And I think when yeah. you've got... When you've got young children, it's something that's ever present because you're watching them grow and at every new milestone and step, you know, they have lost their parent and, and their parent has lost this experience of watching them grow. So I think that keeps it sort of ever present too. I, I was hoping we'd get around to children because um, I feel as if for me, being being a parent while grieving really kept me in. Mm. Uh, yes. you know, I, yeah. I, I never considered, you know, I'm going to go join her. Yeah. Uh, or, you know what I mean? Not, yeah. um, on the other hand, it's it's extremely hard to navigate. I, I had the benefit of having work that left me with some spaciousness mm. because I just don't work 40 hours a week, right? Yeah. But I watch people trying to parent and grieve at the same time, and it's such a collision. Oh, it uh, is. I don't know how that was for you, but it it um, it makes some sense that parents have a hard time inviting their children's grief, even though it's so important to do it. And I yeah. wonder what it was for you. Yes. Well, well, Seb was five and, you know, he, he actually said one of the most poignant things that I have ever heard in my life. The day after Jeff died, when I broke the news to him that his dad had died overnight, um, we were lying on the lounge together, crying, sort of talking. And I remember he said to me, let's, he said, mum, mummy, let's get up and go out into the world together. And I just remember thinking that is an extraordinary piece of leadership from a five-year-old boy. And in a way, that's that's the lead the lead that I took. And I I then had an experience the day of the funeral where we came home and it was very cold here. It was the middle of winter. We walked into this freezing cold house. Everywhere we looked in the house, there were flowers. And then I had these three children that were looking at me as if they were expecting a leader and, and that I would know what to do. <laughs> and you know that feeling when you get in from the funeral and you've everything has sort of been going along in a very busy way because you've had that to plan. Suddenly that's over and you're facing the rest of your life. And I said to them, look, I think what we'll do is that tomorrow we'll have all the family over and we will take all of these flowers and we'll re-bunch them into different sort of posies of flowers and we'll just go and deliver them to a hospital ward. 
because I could envisage the flowers all wilting and dying over the coming days and that being just another thing to deal with and another reminder. And um, so we did that and it was one of the most joyous and uplifting experiences, I think, as a family that we've ever had in the midst of this horrendous loss. And that sort of became then our approach, that we would feel those deep feelings of loss, but we would at the same time look for little jolts of life-affirming experiences that we could grasp onto. And I think that's one of the things that got us through. But certainly as a parent, I was very focused on their grief and my son in particular. And it wasn't until about eight months after Jeff's death that I was actually flown over to the US because Jeff was a military historian and he was president of the peak body of military historians the, the, um, that were based in the US and they had a memorial conference in his honour and flew me over and I spoke at that. And it was like being at a second funeral because all day, every day were his friends and colleagues talking about him and then I would go back to the hotel room at night on my own, no children, I'd left them at home and I just fell apart and it was the lowest that I ever felt. And it was the first opportunity I really had to let my grief have that oxygen that it needed where I could fall apart and the kids weren't there in my face watching me. And that to me was much needed, but also quite terrifying. And then I took myself to New York for three days after that and I'd never been. It was Jeff Avery and he'd always intended to take me. And it was there that I really turned the corner and saw hope for the first time because, as you know, New York is a city that has experienced so much grief of its own. And look at it. It's it's dazzling and exciting and it's it's just vibrant and incredible. And I just sort of was wandering around in Central Park, really enjoying myself for the first time and thinking, you know, maybe I still have a future ahead of me that will be wonderful potentially. And, um, you know, it's obviously been a lot of up and down since then. But for me, that the idea of being able to bring this, this book that I wrote in Australia now back to New York, where I've got a New York publisher and I'm I'm speaking at the, the New York Public Library and that's where I actually sat down and started writing it. It's just a lovely full circle um, experience. But um, but certainly, you know, the, the parenting has been more challenging, but I guess it's also brought us all a lot closer. Um, you know, my children have been extraordinary and I think children can be incredibly resilient and um, we can learn a lot from how children are in times like this. Yeah, I, I always feel as if the things we think are happening with children, like we have to protect them, they can't handle that, you know, all those kinds of um, don't say anything messages. Yes. They're actually about adults. They are. I, I found it to be true of any child I've encountered that they can't handle it. That's and it. The, the people that come to me as adults usually come for grief counseling usually come because everyone thought they couldn't handle it handle it and they got kept away yes, <laughs> so, yes. I, I actually it's, it's interesting because i met several adults who had lost a parent as a child and who came and said to me i love the way that you're handling this with your son because when it happened to me and of course that was several decades ago things were different 
we weren't allowed to talk about it. We had to pretend this hadn't happened. You know, our other parent fell apart and, and never allowed us to speak of it. And they are still to this day experiencing the ramifications of that. And I think now, you know, in general in life, we talk a lot more openly about a lot of things with children. I have found an extraordinary um, organisation in Australia called Camp Magic, which is a camp for children who have lost parent or sibling. And they go to this camp and they have all the fun of a, of a camp. At the same time, they talk and get this language of grief. They learn how to speak about it and they write letters to their parent and put it in the bonfire and, and they're all crying together. And I think partly it's the experience of knowing they're not the only kid who do doesn't have a parent, uh, you know, because that's often what it, the case is at school, for example. You know, I know that Seb has thought that he's the only child in the school that's lost a parent. Um, and unfortunately, as time goes on, that changes, um, you know, as they grow. But he has a level of empathy, I think, that a lot of others his age don't have because they haven't been exposed to this yet, which is good for them. But, um, but it's, it is nice to see. To see it as, you know, my, my kids are, are grown. They're 30 to 42, right? Almost mm -hmm. 40. And they can show up for things that other people in their age group can't always. Yes. Yeah. Because they, you, you're calling it learning the language of grief, you know, kind of learning the, the knowledge, getting the knowledge. Once you have it, you don't lose it, right? Yeah. You disconnect for a minute, but you, you have that experience in your bones. Mm, that's it. Yeah. You're allowed to have it, you have it to offer just like yeah. you do, right? Um, so I'm, uh, I interviewed someone who had a very young child uh, a long, long time ago, and and she said while we were preparing, it was actually a prep interview, she said, will my child be okay? Mm. And all mm. there was how my children are. They're yeah. okay. More yeah. than okay. Absolutely. Yeah. And in fact, somebody sent me a list of all the world leaders who'd lost a parent young, and it was extraordinary, the number of leaders who have been through this. I don't know if you know who Stephen Levine is, but he was an extremely, he's dead now, but he was an extremely gifted um, person in the grief world. He, he wrote a book called Who Dies? Healing. Mm. Oh, yes. That was his whole, whole deal. And once I was speaking with him, he was one of my really dear teachers. I was speaking with him and he said, you know, when I was seven, um, my beloved grandmother died and uh, they didn't allow me to go to the, the funeral. And I've been trying to prove I can handle it ever since. Oh, wow. That's that's extraordinary. In fact, my dad just said to me this week, we were driving back from this holiday and he said, um, you know, I've been worrying ever since his wife, my mum died, that about us having the kids there because they were all there um, in the room or across the hall, but certainly there as she died. And I said, dad, it was hard for the kids and they and they were crying and it was very difficult, but every one of them ha has said they are so glad that they were there for it. And it, it was a privilege to be with her as she, you know, passed on. Worth crying over. Yes, yes. Beautiful, real tears, aren't they? Mm, definitely. Not kind of uh, 
downside. Yes, and, and it helps in the acceptance, I think, as well. Oh, 100%. I agree. Even very little kids, if you're real about death, they don't mm-hmm. think coming back. Yes, that's it. <laughs> yeah. Um, one thing that stands out to me about you is uh, in terms of your grief process, which eventually led to the book, of course, mm-hmm. that's for me, um, is that you followed your instincts. You wrote because writing is a way you felt like you wanted to. I, I didn't do the same things in grief that I would do usually, but I did what my instinct told me to do. Yes. And that really served me. And it seems as if it served you. I learned over 10 years to follow my instincts, but it seems as if you got that pretty quickly. And when we get back from the break, I'd really like to talk about that because I think it's so important in grieving. Mm, I'd love to talk about that. Photography. You did photography. Yes. I don't know if you were into it before, but not no, today. No, it's a new thing. Yes. Or uh, that idea of remixing the flowers, right? Mm-hmm. It's following instinct, whether it makes logical sense or it doesn't, it doesn't matter. I really mm-hmm. want to that through when we get back. Great. Listeners, again, you can go to my website, weatheringrief.com. You can go to the Good Grief host page. And to find Emma Gray, go to emmagray.com.au. Back after the break. America is on LinkedIn. Connect with us today. This is Good Grief host Cheryl Jones. Whether you're in grief, crisis, deep loss, or transition, working with the right therapist can move you forward like nothing else. That's why I'm happy to be sponsoring BetterHelp. Their user-friendly platform connects you with a therapist uniquely suited to support you. If you want to know more, follow the link on my host page or go to BetterHelp.com dot com slash good grief that's betterhelp.com slash good grief and receive a 10 percent discount for the first month these days everyone is looking for information on staying young healthy and fit the voice america health and wellness network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you we talk about everything from diet fitness and aging to substance abuse personal growth mental health and much more learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives tune in to the voice america health and wellness network healthy living starts here Functional Medicine with Dr. Robbins looks at how natural healing and biological dentistry can safely and effectively treat most health problems. You'll hear about the innovations in both traditional and alternative medicine therapies with doctors and dentists, along with discussions with chiropractors, medical experts, homeopaths, naturopaths, and energetic healers. It's great to have all the best information in one place. And Functional Medicine with Dr. Robbins brings it all together. Listen Thursdays at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific on Voice America. America Health and Wellness. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1 866 472 5792. That's 1 866 472 5792. 
You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. I've been talking with Emma Gray about her novel, The Last Love Note. And uh, before the break, Emma, I was saying I wanted to talk with you about grief instincts. Mm-hmm. Uh, because um, they're so powerful. And I find that so many people who come into my office um, fight them. I guess that's how I'd put it. You know, that's crazy, or I don't know why I want to do that. They're trying to figure it out, like we try to figure everything out. I don't think it can be figured out. No, I don't either. And I think it's different in every single circumstance. Yes. Um, You know, for instance, I write, obviously, I didn't want to write at all. I wanted to sing. I wanted to garden, which gardening is not a thing for me. Yeah. You know, the things that I would have predicted. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I actually went through multiple phases of creativity in ways that aren't me. Uh, so I tried to do watercolor painting and then I was doing, you know, those intricate little repetitive patterns called Zen tangling where you just sort of mandalas and that sort of thing. And I became obsessed with this and I, I was just doing it constantly. Gardening, another one that hadn't been me, but now is me. Um, and then I I really discovered photography and it has become a huge passion of mine. And I, um, I've actually been capturing the Southern Lights, the Aurora Australis, um, which is just this magnificent celestial um experience that I mentioned in the last love note. Um, there's, there's another part of Kate that is very much part of me. And, um, you know, it's a hobby that I adore that I, and I, I sometimes think, gosh, Jeff didn't know this about me. And if he was to walk in now and see the things that I'm doing, there's parts of it that would be unrecognizable. Uh, we've we sold the house. I sold the house and and downsized into a and built from scratch a, a new house, and it's full of light and it's airy and it's it's all white and I'm sure that was all a response to the grief. I just wanted sort of natural light and you know it's a very sort of feminine house in how I've decorated it in a way that he would sort of walk in and feel like he didn't belong and. <laughs> um, just so much of that, 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 and I say to people, we need to go towards any little glimmer of hope or joy or happiness. I do recall the first time I felt happy after he died. And it was, it was that I went and had dinner with a friend. We had a lovely conversation. I was walking back to the car afterwards and I realized that I was smiling and then I immediately felt guilty thinking, what am I doing? My husband died. How could I possibly be feeling happy? And, and not realizing back then, this is the goal. We, we, you know, and this is what they would want for us to be able to find that joy again. And it's never quite the same. In fact, every joyous, wonderful experience is tinged with this heartache as well. So it's very bittersweet. I think, you know, all the celebrations, that we've experienced with the kids and with me and my career and all that sort of stuff have this sort of um, other side where we wish he was here experiencing this. But um, but as I said before, you know, he, he died, but we haven't. And um, 
anything that we can do, I think, to bring ourselves alive can make a difference. I'd I'd written a teenage novel before he died and I was co-writing a musical about it with a friend from high school. She's a composer here. And we put this show on. It's a it's a high school story. We put it on in a high school the year after Jeff died and there was a glitter cannon and disco balls and all of this joy and exuberance. And it's not what I would ever have imagined doing in the year after my husband died. You know, you sort of don't think, let's put on a really shiny, happy high school musical. But gosh, it saved me. It saved me. And uh, I found it incredibly confronting to do. I remember that at closing night, I went home and I, for some reason, my hand had swollen and I couldn't get my rings off. I couldn't get my wedding ring and my engagement ring off. And I started having visions of having to get them cut off in hospital, you know, because my finger was swollen. So I took them off for the first time. And I can't help wondering if there was some sort of timing to that because I had finally done this thing for myself um, and I was proud of that. And I'd not only survived it, but it had been absolutely wonderful. And um, it was almost felt like a message from Jeff to live and to get out there and, and do things again. One thing I find myself saying to people really regularly is that grief is not depression. Yes. Yes. Everything, everything is dull. Everything is, I find grief to be very intense. Mm. And even when like that, what you just captured about that night, I feel like I'm there, you know, it's so, and has so much intensity and so much beauty Mm. and to be the opposite of grief yes it's very interesting because the i think i think the knowledge that life is short hits you after you've lost someone you become intimately acquainted with that fact in a way that almost can push you more into life than you were before and that's not to say that i haven't had times when i've just been on the lounge and haven't been able to get up and have been distraught and um, I do remember a walk with a friend not long after Jeff died where I it was beautiful. It was springtime and there was a lake and there was sunlight on the water and blossoms in the trees. And I remember looking at it and thinking, I can see with my eyes that this is beautiful, but I'm feeling absolutely nothing in my heart. And I made a decision that day, another instinctive thing, that I would just keep showing up at these walks and, and showing up in nature until I did feel something again. And you have to accept that it's not a perfect situation and that that you are going to feel these different ways. Um, But there certainly has been a drive in me that I don't think was there as much before I lost him. And and it is this sense, life is short. We have this one opportunity. And and also that I want to honour him and our love. And I think I do that in the book, but also just in everyday life. you know, it's such a privilege to be here at all. And I think we really get that message when we're confronted by loss. Absolutely. I also think it's possible, for me this was true, grief grew my capacity because I wasn't avoiding any feeling anymore. Yes. Learned how to allow it all. Mm. And so I, I think this is not a scientific idea, but I believe feelings all live in the same part of us. So mm-hmm. if we one, the okay. other a little dulled, you know? So I want a part of it too, that you've just, you're more 
present to what you're going through and able to let it be what it is, perhaps. I think, yes, I think you are. And I think there's also an awful lot of letting go in grief. So the things that used to get on your nerves or worry you, you just let it go a lot of the time because it, it's not worth it. It's just not worth wasting your time thinking about. Um, so I think it just, it, it rapidly changes your perspective on life. And um, I feel that every time I go to somebody's funeral, you know, I, I sit there and I reflect on what am I doing with my life? You know, I'm listening to them talk about what they've done and their life story. And I think, wow, that's incredible. Uh, you know, what next for all of us in this room? And um yeah, there, there is a sort of, there's an opportunity, I guess, in loss that we wouldn't ask for or want. Nobody would desire this or put themselves into this situation, you know, if we had a, had a chance not to. But when you do, then I think if we can learn from it and change our, our perspective and um, shape our lives in a different way, it can be deeper and more intense and um, and still very beautiful if completely different from what we had. If terrible things are going to happen, which they are, yes. are we going to do something with it or just let it be a terrible thing? That's kind of how I think about it. You seem like a person who wanted to make something of it, and you have. Yes. yes. Yeah, that's right. Um, we didn't talk too much about your older children who mm. lost a stepfather. Yeah. Assuming those experiences with them were quite different then yes i think they felt i certainly my eldest daughter who's now 25 felt a real uh sort of responsibility to be there for her younger sister and her younger brother in a way that cost her um you know she fell in a bit of a heap towards the end of school um she's now doing brilliantly and she's doing a phd in criminology and she's just flying but she certainly went through this um bit of a crash and i look back and think i i feel as though i wasn't aware enough of what she was going through because she was just hiding it so well and, and being together and holding it together and i think that a lot of people do that whether they're children or not um for the people around them and it it's it's a first stop don't you think yes a thing to do mm. and was old enough to i interviewed someone who lost his parents at 14 murder it, oh. and he said he couldn't really handle it until he was 25 yeah then apart yes. and he had it and you know yeah. i think there's an age factor there too don't I think, think so too. oh yes yeah it's very interesting i mean just thinking about how the brain develops and the, the different ages and you know, it must have an impact on them differently depending on how old they are. Well, I am hoping, I have a personal hope that you will write something that is your next perspective because I'm several decades out now and that's what I'm thinking about and writing about. I'm fascinated. And you can come back on, we can talk about it. Oh, Cheryl, I would love that. I think what you're doing is extraordinary. Oh, thank you so much. Meantime, thank you so much for being here today. I've enjoyed the conversation very much. Oh, me too. Wonderful. Thanks, everyone. And to find Emma Gray, I, I highly recommend the book. Uh, you can go to emmagray.com.au. And of course, you can buy the book anywhere it's sold. This has been Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. I look forward to being with you again next week for another meaningful conversation. Mm -hmm.
Thank you so much for joining us for Good Grief. Please come back next Wednesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Cheryl Jones, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a meaningful week. Abre mi corazón.